I grew up in a church with a dress code. On Sunday morning, the men and the boys, we sported suits and white shirts and ties. It was a clip-on for me that was about as unconventional as we got. The women and the girls, they would dress, wear dresses or either skirts and blouses. We were a church in the deep south before the days of central air conditioning. Everybody arrived early so that they could grab a seat under a ceiling fan. That summer heat, man, it made the dress code especially oppressive for a young man 8 to 12 years old, which is what I was. My mom would dress me and my little brother up, and then we'd, she'd march us up to that torturous, hot cauldron of misery called the church. Even on sweltering days, I mean on days when the dogs stayed under the porch, we would observe the dress code. I can recall sitting next to an open window, the ceiling fans buzzing like helicopter blades. Our only relief were the paper fans on popsicle sticks that were provided by the funeral home. In retrospect, it was great marketing by The Undertaker. Everybody knew the odds of somebody dropping over dead from heat exhaustion were great. We couldn't get home fast enough to shed our church clothes. When we got home, it was really the most spiritual we got. Shorts and t-shirts were a little taste of heaven after having spent the morning at church. You see, I grew up in a fundamental Baptist church. And trust me, our church managed to take the fun out of fundamental. We were so conservative, we saw the Southern Baptists as liberals. Ask a deacon what translation we used, and he would assure you the King James Version, because that's the version the Apostle Paul read. We weren't exactly accused of being too open-minded. But we were proud of that dress code. It was rigorously enforced. The big scandal that rocked the church of my childhood occurred when one of the ladies came to church on a Sunday night in a pantsuit, aghast. Ladies wore skirts and dresses only, and the hymn line never rose above the knee, never. After church, if the girls wanted to play softball with the boys, they better not slide. It's a bad idea to slide in a skirt. I'll never forget when the church put my dad up for consideration as a deacon. One old coot voted against him. In the interview, he asked my mom if she ever wore short pants. She answered, well, sure, I always wear shorts when I clean the house. You would have thought she'd just confessed to prostitution. <laughs> that was all the old goat needed to give my dad a thumbs down. Needless to say, dress codes were taken seriously in those days. I never actually saw it, but I heard of a preacher who actually mowed his lawn every Saturday all summer long in a suit. I mean, it was holiness gone haywire. Here was the rationale behind our church's dress code. God deserves our very best. Never give God your leftovers, only the pick of the litter. And so my mom would go to the closet and she would pull out the best clothes we had. Understand, I believe in that basic premise. God does deserve our best. Our best efforts, 
our best concentration, our top talents, our prime time, the first of our income. I believe that we should give God the best in lots of areas of our life. But how does that translate into a fashion statement? I mean, where did we get the idea that God cares about the clothes that we wear? Garments last just a few weeks. They're eaten by moths. They wear out and they shrink. All my clothes shrink. I never outgrow them. They just shrink. They disappear from the fashion racks quicker than a southern snowflake when it hits the ground. Trust me, the God we serve cares far more about the content of our heart than he does the clothes on our back. When I look into the rearview mirror of my life, the churches that I attended judged people by how they looked or seemed on the outside. How did we miss Jesus' teaching when he told the hypocrites that to clean the inside of the cup was far more important than polishing the outside? I remember the passage that finally set me free. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. When the prophet Samuel went to anoint David as king, God told him in advance, Do not look at his appearance, for the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Man, I read that and realized that the church should see people as God sees them. It doesn't matter the length of your hair or the clothes that you wear or the pigment of your skin or the tats on your shin. It's what's in your heart that matters to God, and that's what needs to matter to His church. Sadly, I've been to churches that made coming to God too complicated. They put lots of stuff between God and people. A haircut, or a wardrobe, or church attendance, or a political persuasion, or a preferred denomination, or a specific day to worship, or observing some religious tradition. You see, this is why our mission at Calvary Chapel has always been to make coming to God as simple as God makes it. And God has made it real simple. God has made it all about grace. Just step over your pride and trust your life to Jesus, man, and that's it. The gate to God will swing wide open. No pledges to sign, no rules to enforce, no passwords to memorize, no oaths to take, no courses to pass, no rituals to observe, no secret handshakes to learn, no dress codes to adopt. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've had people tell me, sorry, Sandy, I can't come to church. I don't have any church clothes. You ever heard that? I hope the phrase church clothes just gets lost from the vernacular. Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain has always been and will always be a grace place. Over the years, we've had hippies in tie-dyes and yuppies in polos and bikers in leather, and Africans in dashikis, and rednecks in overalls. All different stripes and types. Everybody gets welcomed at Calvary Chapel. Hey, God loves you as is. That's why we insist, come as you are. Once we had this beefy guy. I mean, this guy was like 300 pounds. And he came to church in a pair of worn-out overalls. That's it. Bare-chested, no shoes, just overalls. For years, your pastor wore flip-flops to church. My favorite shirt for years was this black shirt, and it had these real cool pink flamingos all over it. 
I caught Kathy a couple of times trying to burn it. But I saved it. One Sunday, a guy walked into Calvary Chapel wearing a t-shirt that read, Die Yuppie Scum. At the time, Pastor James was our only yuppie. And so I told him to duck. I was worried about him. Instead, the guy got saved that morning and was baptized. I'll never forget my mom coming to Calvary Chapel on a Christmas Eve. Our ushers that night were a couple of really roughnecks who had been gloriously saved by God's grace. But they still looked and dressed a lot like roughnecks. Later, I asked my mom how she enjoyed the service, and she said, Sandy, it was lovely, but I wasn't sure if the ushers were going to rob me or seat me. <laughs> hey, God's grace takes people just as they are and right where they're at. And as the church, this is how we should relate to one another. Hey, if we want a real relationship with God, we need to start by being authentic ourselves. You know, in some ways, the Baptist church of my childhood was right. The church does need a dress code. It does matter what you wear to church. But in Colossians chapter 3, we learn that our dress code has nothing to do with what we hang on our frame. It has everything to do with the attitude of our heart. Paul tells us what to put off. And then he gives us the attributes to put on. Now that we belong to Jesus, we need to wear the attitudes worthy of a child of God. In fact, our text addresses not only what to wear to church, but what to wear wherever we go. Chapter 3 outlines the dress code for a Christian. Proper attire involves our love, our peace, and our praise. Well, first, Paul tells us what we need to put off. In verse 5, he lists sexual sins. We need to put off things like fornication and evil desire and uncleanness. In verses 8 and 9, he names social sins like anger and filthy language. Let's pick up Paul's stream of thought in verse 9. He says, Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds. This is part one of the new dress code. Put off the old man. But now for part two. And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. You see, the Christian life involves a new wardrobe. Like a runway model. We're busy putting off and putting on. Shedding old attitudes and behaviors. Slipping on new perspectives and patterns and practices. And here's why. A colossal change occurs in a person's heart when they become a Christian. In Christ, the old man is dead. You see, that's your BC life. That's your life before you came to Christ. According to Romans chapter 6, that old you was put to death on the cross with Jesus. Hey, say a few words over him if you like, but bury him quick. You're better off without him. You're now a new you. But you see, here's the problem. That old man had a closet full of clothes that he liked to wear. <coughs> Habits and attitudes and practices that reflected his life apart from Christ. You see, God has worked a marvelous, miraculous change in you and I. But here's the change we need to make. We need a new wardrobe. 
We need to put off and put on. Hey, when you hit the street in the a.m., what do you wear? Do you sport your old ratty lifestyle? Or do you dress for spiritual success and wear a new attitude? One year, my son, he played on a soccer team that featured two Casey's. Not this Casey, but two other Casey's. One of the Casey's was a boy, and another of the Casey's was a girl. And at first, the coach did nothing to distinguish between the two kids. He would just yell, Casey, do this. Casey, do that. And the kids went nuts. They were obviously confused. But it didn't take long for the coach to resolve the chaos. The coach started shouting, pass it, Casey boy. Clear it out, Casey girl. And all year long, he'd shout at Casey boy, Casey girl, Casey boy, Casey girl. That's how he differentiated them. Well, this is how you need to live the Christian life. You got to learn who's who. When temptation calls my name or I hear an echo from my past, it wants the old Sandy. But the old Sandy's dead. He's not answering calls anymore. I'm the new Sandy. And when I'm sure of that new identity, I'll stop responding to the old calls. The idea of putting off and putting on is to know who you are in Christ. It's to adopt a new identity. It's to bury the old man and see yourself as a new you. The story's told of the church father, Augustine. He was walking down the street one day when he was spotted by one of his former mistresses, a lover from his past. She approached him and she started shouting, Augustine, it is I, it is I. Augustine turned and he started running in the opposite direction and he looked over his shoulder and shouted, but it is not I. It is not I. We need to change how we see ourselves. John Wayne was and is my all-time favorite character. And I love what John told a reporter. He said, when I take a role, I'll play John Wayne, regardless of the character I happen to be portraying. And that's how he worked. Dress him up in a cowboy hat or soldier's uniform or a firefighter, it didn't matter. John Wayne always played John Wayne. The old duke knew who he was and he refused to be anybody else. And this is how you live the Christian life. You put off the old, you put on the new. You know who you are in Christ and you live accordingly, regardless of your predicament or your peers. And speaking of the new man, Paul says in verse 11, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. You see, there were teachers in Colossae who were spiritual elitists. They had boasted in a special knowledge of God. They had special access to God. But Paul denies their claim. He says that in Christ all distinctions, racial and cultural and status distinctions, they all get abolished. Did you know the ground at the foot of the cross is the flattest in all the universe? You see, the cross of Jesus is the great leveler. It doesn't matter how millions of money you have. It doesn't matter the accomplishments, the accolades you've racked up. We're all in the same condition needing the same salvation at the foot of the cross. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. At the cross, everyone is on equal footing before God. Well, then Paul says in verse 12, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. You see, if there is an elitist group, it's those who are in Christ. We are chosen by God. 
Paul calls us the elect. We have been elected. You didn't even know you were running. Apparently a vote was taken and you were elected into God's family. Here's the bad news. You won by a single vote. As a matter of fact, you only got one vote. Here's the good news. You got God's vote. And he's the only person to cast a ballot. And God now considers you holy and beloved. You're special in Christ. This is why when God calls your name, he's always shouting, New Sandy, New Sandy. And this is where the dress code kicks in. If I see myself as this new Sandy, I'll dress accordingly. As the next verse says, I'll put on tender mercies and kindness and humility and meekness and long-suffering. Hey, I'll put on love. I'll treat other folks with the same love with which God has loved me. And I'll do it all for the right reasons. Mark Twain, he once said of an acquaintance, he was a good man in the worst sort of way. You know, I hate to say it, but I've known a few folks like that. You know, you can be a moral person with standards and convictions, but still be a pompous jerk. In fact, in my rearview mirror, I have seen church folk who would have never been caught smoking or cursing or dipping or sipping, but they were hard and harsh people. They did little to reflect the love of God. Oh, they were moral, but they weren't very compassionate. Understand, whenever virtue is sought for virtue's sake, all we end up is self-righteous moralists. You recall the rich young ruler? He kept all the rules, but there was still something missing, wasn't there? You see, Jesus didn't die just to make us moral. You can keep your nose clean and not know God. When you make humility the goal, you, you can become proud of your humility. If you make humility your goal, that's what you'll become. I know two Christian musicians who named their band, tongue-in-cheek, the Fabulous Humble Brothers. They knew just how elusive humility can be. The moment you become aware that you're humble, you've lost it. Understand why we put on love. We do it for Jesus' sake. And for the sake of other people, not just to make ourselves prideful and self-righteous. Here's why we put on tender mercies. Because the people around us are guilty and they need mercy. Did you know that this world is nothing but a big death row? Why show kindness? Because people are cruel and they need kindness. Why walk humbly? Because people get down. And we can't lift them or ease their load until we get down under their burden. Why be meek or gentle? Because people are fragile. Why be long-suffering or patient? It's because people require time. Why bear with one another? <laughs> because people are different. Why forgive? It's because people sin, including you. Everybody needs forgiveness from time to time. When I seek to be humble and meek and patient and tolerant and forgiving, I'm not showboating an exemplary character. I'm not pinning on a badge that I can wear proudly and pompously. Oh, no. I just want to put on love. I want to show others the same love that I've received. And so Paul tells us, put on tender mercies. 
Be a merciful person. Imagine people in your life stranded alongside the road. Imagine everyone in your life, they're stranded on the side of the road, and yet everybody else is just driving down the road, just busy, ignoring them left and right except you. You're the Christian. The Christian has tender mercies. The Christian sees that person who's stranded. The Christian reaches out to that person. A Christian sees and cares. Tender mercies is taking your pain into my heart. It's being sensitive to others. And then he says, put on kindness. This is mercy in action. You know, with all of our modern technology, it's so easy now for us to live our lives vicariously. You know, we'll see a need on television or on the internet, and because we're moved by it, we feel a personal relief. As if we've done something about it. We really haven't. All we've done is eased our guilt, but we've done nothing to affect real life. Kindness, though, is an act of compassion. It's not just feeling tender mercies, but it's tenderness with a touch. It's reaching out and impacting the situation. Paul tells us to put on humility. Football coaches have a saying, low man wins. You know, the player who can get up underneath the other guy's pads has the leverage. Even if you're smaller, if you can hit lower, you can move your opponent. And this is what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. Low man wins. You don't help folks who are down from the top of your soapbox. No, you intimidate or infuriate from up there. But in order to help them, you've got to come humbly. You've got to get under their burden and let them know that you care. And then you can help carry their load. Paul also tells us to treat each other with meekness or gentleness. Meekness isn't weakness. It's actually power under restraint. Somebody complained recently about me not telling enough NASCAR illustrations. And so here's a NASCAR illustration. Meekness is a stock car with restrictor plates. You see, these eager engineers, man, they build these cars so fast that they'll fly off the track when they go into a turn. And so what does NASCAR do? They require restrictor plates to slow the cars down. Hope I got that right. The goal is to limit wrecks and keep the drivers safe. And this is why our strength and our boldness sometimes needs a restrictor plate. Meekness is throttled down strength. You see, people are fragile. Human beings break. And if we're like a bull in a china shop, if we get pushier in a hurry or try to force our opinion on someone else, we can cause damage. Without gentleness, we run people over. We wreck relationships. Too many people have been wiped out by a pushy Christian. Understand why meekness is so important. It's gentleness that promotes growth. You see, harsh environments and abrupt behaviors are not conducive for little saplings to take root. A living thing about to bud needs to be treated tenderly. My wife enjoys plants and my son loves his mom. And so one year for her birthday, Nick gave Kathy a tiny little tree for our front yard. She was going to plant it out there and watch it grow over the years. Sadly, I wasn't privy to the sentimental attachment that my wife had for that tree. She didn't really tell me anything about it until it was too late. 
I don't know why she did it, but she planted it right in my mowing pattern. I mean, right in my mowing pattern. I saw it, but the sun was hot. And it was really humid that day, and I had work to do. I had things to get done. And it didn't really register with me what this little tree was. As a matter of fact, my yard is full of trees. Why do I need one more? And so you guessed it. I ran my lawnmower right over that tree. Crushed it. Bulldozed it to the ground. If I lived in California, the tree huggers would have thrown me in jail. And it would have been a light sentence compared to what I received from Judge Kathy. <laughs> but in my rearview mirror, man, I've seen church leaders commit the same crime. They get busy. The pressure was on. They had a job to do. Someone got in the way of their ambition and they got bulldozed over. Christians need to understand that the ends never justifies the means. It's not just what we do for God that matters, but it's how we do it. Let's not run each other over. Let's show tender mercies, kindness, meekness. And let's be long-suffering or patient. And why? Because people require time. Did you know that? Spiritual growth requires time. God is growing fruit in our life. That means there's a season to sow. And there's a season to reap, but there's always time between the sowing and the reaping for that fruit to mature. And God doesn't grow people in your time or in my time. He grows people in their time and in His time. You know, sometimes it takes time for people to reach the right decision. Often, they make the right decision only after they've made the wrong decision multiple times. That's why we should never write anybody off. We should give people time. I'll never forget a comment that I heard from a fellow Calvary Chapel pastor who had spent his early years in another church. He said, the denomination that I was a part of had its prodigal children. So does Calvary Chapel. But in Calvary Chapel, they come back because the kids know that they'll find grace. I think that's true. I've now been a pastor for 31 years and there's one truth I've learned. It ain't over till it's over. Yogi Berra was a prophet. The hound of heaven is tireless and relentless and he'll chase you down even if it takes him some time. We also need tolerance. As Paul puts it, Bearing with one another. This doesn't mean tolerating a sin or a heresy. It just means putting up with a person's humanness. You see, all folks have their peculiarities, their quirks. One night, Kathy and I, we had accepted a dinner invitation from a couple that was new to our church. And afterwards, we were driving home. And I, and I just mentioned to her, I said, you know, honey, I said, those were some really strange people. And she agreed. A few minutes later, though, she started laughing. I said, well, what's, what's so funny? She said, you know, I bet they're sitting around their table right now saying to one another, you know those Adamses? They're some really strange people. <laughs> if the truth be known, we're all a little weird, aren't we? Boy, it's easy to love the lovable, but Jesus loves the hard to love. He's not embarrassed by our awkwardness. Or ashamed of our short, sordid past. 
Jesus is quick to call us his child. Jesus bears with you even on your grisly days. Hey, we'll be slow to criticize if we understand that we need to bear with one another. We'll assume the best in others. We'll get the log out of our own eye before we start worrying about the splinter in our brother's eye. Paul also tells us, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you so you also must do. You know, it would have been one thing if Paul had just said, forgiving one another, and left it at that. That would have left us some wiggle room. We could have come up with an exception or two. But he ups the ante exponentially with the phrase, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. Oh my, if Jesus is the measuring stick, then there's nothing that we shouldn't forgive. We're to forgive even as we've been forgiven. Years ago, some of the guys from the church, we went rafting down the Chattooga River, and I had the bell bucket in my hand. I was planning a splash assault on another boat. A water war was on the horizon. When one of my mates got a little hesitant, he was worried about making the other guys mad. He said, let's not make any enemies here. And he was just about to dash all of our fun until Tracy Waters rescued the situation with his sage wisdom. I'll never forget it, Tracy said, ah, let's just go ahead and drill them. They're Christians. They got to forgive us. <laughs> and he is absolutely right. If you're a Christian, you have to forgive. Jesus has left us no other option. And then verse 14, but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Hey, you could say that love is the material from which all the other Christian virtues get cut. It's the fabric of Christian fellowship, love. Love is the bond or the glue that holds us together. You know, if you brought all of us into the room to discuss politics or to discuss sports, we'd splinter faster than cheap plywood. But focus on the love of Jesus and his grace will transcend all of our differences. We are loved and we love from the same fountainhead. You see, the love of God produces the peace of God in our hearts and among each other. And once we've experienced the peace of God, notice verse 15. He says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. You know, when I look back in the rearview mirror of my life, Here's what churches refuse to do. Let peace rule. The churches that I attended were like a war zone. There was always contention. Our peace was being interrupted by opinions and prejudice. I'll never forget one night when this building was under construction. I came up to check on the progress, and there was a, a young man sitting right back on the grassy knoll, right back in the back of the church. And I asked him what he was doing. He said he'd come up for prayer. And then he made the comment, he says, you know, Sandy, he said, I just find such peace in this place. You know, that's what church should be. It should be a place where God's peace rules. The Greek word translated rule referred to a judge in an athletic competition. In essence, an umpire. Paul is telling us that when decisions are too close to call, when it's a bang-bang choice, let the peace of God rule. Has God given us a peace in the matter? 
Are we at ease with the decision? Or is there something still troubling us that we can't put our finger on? Don't ignore God's peace. Let God's peace sort these things out. Don't ignore your uneasiness. Don't ignore that restlessness. If you're feeling uneasy, don't pull the trigger. Let the peace of God umpire your decisions. Choose the path of God's peace. Let his peace call it fair or foul. The problem, though, with the peace plan is that it's pretty subjective. There are times when we can deceive our own hearts. And so along with God's peace, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Churches where the peace of God rules and the word of Christ dwells. You know, every now and then, I'll have someone, they'll come up and they'll say something along the lines, Pastor Sandy, I've been praying about it for some time now, and God has finally given me a peace about divorcing my wife. And I can respond dogmatically, no, he has not. You got no biblical justification for that. God isn't going to give you a peace about something he's forbidden in his word. The word of God tells me to love you. You need to love your wife. You see, true peace comes from God, but a false peace is the work of the devil. And it's possible that we can be deceived. God never gives us a peace to do something that's forbidden by his word. That's why along with the peace of God, we need the word of Christ. Our, our new attitudes, our new values should be informed and shaped by the word of God, not just our personal peace. And then Paul adds, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Here's something else you need to wear to church. A passion to praise God. Where the peace of God rules and the word of Christ dwells, the praise of God rises up among his people. We'll sing to God. We'll sing to God with grace in our hearts. Man, I attended church for years, and I sang hymn after hymn after hymn, but I never directed my singing to him. How did that happen? I mouthed lyrics and hummed tunes, but it was never directed to God. I never sang with grace in my heart. I knew little of grace. When you attend church, I hope your heart is decked out in praise. We sing psalms, Paul tells us. These are scriptural songs. Many of our songs come right out of the psalms of David. We sing hymns. These are the anthems that tell us about God's glory and grace and teach us as we sing. And we sing spiritual songs. These are the choruses that express our heart and love and passion for the Lord. All three types of songs can be part of our praise. I love how Peterson paraphrases the end of verse 16. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. He renders it. Sing. Sing your hearts out to God. Here's a great way to put on the new you. Sing your heart out to God. And don't think that praise is confined to a few songs on Sunday morning. This is what I overlooked for years, for so long in my life. You can turn your sports or your work, or your exercise, or your talk, or your chores. Whatever you do, whenever you do it, you can turn it into an act of worship. You can direct it to God. Rather than complain about your job, you can turn your work into worship by doing it as unto the Lord. 
You can load trucks for Jesus. You can manage spreadsheets for Jesus. You can handle customers for Jesus. You can do landscaping for Jesus. Notice verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? In word and deed. Every thought, every activity, every conversation, whatever it is, you can use it to praise our Lord Jesus. Well, here's the believer's wardrobe. Put on love and unity and praise. As a new creation in Christ, let's dress for success. Let's treat each other with tender mercies. Let the bond of love and the peace of God and the word of Christ unite us. And then turn all that you do and say into praise. When you come to church, and when you leave as the church, Throughout the week, let's put off the old threads and let's put on the new you.